Gotta get to the egg, gotta get inside Spread those genes, what I mean, gotta spread it wide Gotta get to the egg, gotta just confirm That you know it's the show of the egg and sperm Hi everyone, welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, and today I have another guest, so it's not about hearing me talk. By the way, in case you haven't noticed, I'm trying to mix up the introductory music each week to match the topic with the song. What do you guys think? If you're a regular listener, you know that it is both my personal and scientific belief that gene-environment interactions are not studied enough in autism. So I jump at every opportunity to investigate a new theory, a new mechanism, an idea, and a suggestion about how genetics and the environment can work together. There are few studies on this, and mostly they involve children who have already been born. A few studies like Marbles and Early track pregnant women who have a high likelihood of having a second child with autism through their pregnancies to get at gene-environment interactions that can occur prenatally. The unfortunate reality is that most studies just don't have enough information on genetics and the environment together to really investigate the question. Don't get me wrong, there is some research, but compared to what's out there on genes separately and the environment separately, it's practically nothing. Recently, Jill Escher and her colleagues published an interesting idea in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders around something called the germline disruption hypothesis. To give you some background, the germline is basically the cells that create the embryo. For purposes of this discussion, it's the sperm and the egg. And while mothers are usually the ones who get blamed, so to speak, thank you, Bruno Bettelheim, it's much easier to study sperm than eggs. Well, let me rephrase that. It's much easier to collect sperm than it is eggs. And so there have been some studies looking at the sperm of fathers who have a child with autism. And a study last year looked at small changes in some of the genetic tags, which could influence the diagnosis in that embryo that's generated when sperm connects with the egg. Can these disruptions in the sperm and the egg be part of the gene environment story? Are they susceptible to environmental factors? How do you study them? Spoiler, it's much easier to do this in animal models than it is in people because you can control the environment and more carefully document exposures than you can in humans. Also, is there any other evidence that sperm and egg influence things like cancer, schizophrenia, and even autism? Now, Jill Escher is the president of the National Council of Severe Autism, the immediate past president of the ASA in San Francisco. She's a lawyer, a Stanford graduate. I've known her for years, and she knows more about this topic in her thumb than most people know in their whole body. She works with the Society for Environmental Mutagenesis and has published about this before. I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to hear about this idea. So here is our interview. She will answer all the questions I posed just now. Jill, thank you so much for joining today. And Happy thank to you. Thank you for your publication in JAD, because I think that it's enormously thought-provoking, and I was thrilled that you could join the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Alicia. Very happy to talk about this new paper. So my first question is, could you describe the germline disruption hypothesis? Well, there are two types of cells in the human body. There are somatic cells that make up our bodies, our skin cells, our liver cells, our heart cells, etc. And then we have germ cells, which are our sperm and egg, 
and all of their precursors. And those precursors start in us when we are basically five week old embryos. So somatic cells and germ cells. When we're talking about germline disruption, we're only talking about our germ cells, which means our sperm, our egg, and all those precursors that go back you know, decades to the time that we are embryos. But what is germline disruption? What's the disruption part? Well, germ cells, of course, have DNA, right? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows, you know, there's 46 chromosomes, you divide them in half, you have 23 chromosomes in each gamete, in each germ cell. Um, and if you have like a mutation, for example, in one of those genes, that could be considered germline disruption. But we consider it, we, we talk about it more as an epigenetic phenomenon. And I don't know how much your listeners know about epigenetics, but epigenetics, as we consider it, is the layers of molecular programming on and around the DNA that control gene expression. Can things disrupt that epigenome? Our answer is yes. And can those disruptions then lead to a phenotype in the offspring that impairs neurodevelopment? And our answer to that is yes. So our paper basically says it's oversimplistic to think about autism as a genes or environment issue, which is basically how it's been thought about for the last three decades. We're basically saying there's another way to think about autism risk, and it has to do with what happens inside germ cells to change how genes are expressed after conception. Does that make sense to you? It makes sense to me. Maybe we can think about it. There's an image that I'm going to do a screenshot of and put it in the podcast summary where you literally have an image of a sperm and an egg, and then you have an image of the developing fetus. And then you have the, you know, the pointing to the, the egg in the fetus and how that works. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how people are studying germline disruption scientifically. Like for example, in a mouse, how do you, um, if you were to do this in a mouse or an animal model, how you would study the effects on the germ cell through multiple generations? Right. Good question. So in the paper, we offer four examples of this. And I should say, when I say we, um, I'm the first author, I kind of conceived of the paper, but um, there are five scientists who are co-authors and these, uh, Victor Corsis, Wei Yan, Emily Rissman, Arturo Hernandez, and Shaolin Wang. And they are all experimental scientists who actually do this work, right? I'm not a scientist, I wanna put it out there. I've never claimed to be a scientist, I'm an advocate. But uh, these are the people who actually run these animal models, and they can see this happening on a molecular basis and on a behavioral basis in their animals. So just want to say that. Okay, so we don't pretend to like know every single substance that can have an impact on the germline, but we do talk about four of them. Um, they are um, halogenated general anesthetic gases. And I realize that that's kind of a mouthful, but basically those are very, very commonly used um, gases in surgery. Um, and they've been around for the last you know, five decades or so, more than that. Tobacco and components, endocrine disrupting compounds, which are basically hormone disrupting compounds. And then um, uh, the last one is valproic acid. So let's just talk about one of these examples. And it's the most prominent example and the one that we really talk about most in the paper, which is the halogenated general anesthetic gases. So 
um, let's say you're having surgery, Alicia, uh, they'll put a mask over your face and it's usually something like sevoflurane. You inhale that sevoflurane and that gas diffuses not just to your lungs, but then through your bloodstream and throughout your body, wherever there's some vasculature and it will diffuse to your gonads and it will reach your germ cells. So when a toxicant like that, and this is a very powerful poison, reaches the germ cells, you know, what happens? Can the germ cells change or are the germ cells imperturbable? You know, are they so resistant to toxicants that basically nothing can get through and no damage can be done. And what we see in study after study, and again, these are almost always done in mammalian models. It's hard to do in humans. Um, and we can get to that and why that's so hard um, is that these germ cells can be damaged and they can be changed. Sometimes, rarely, these things can cause you know, DNA damage and then mutation where the DNA is not repaired, DNA damage is not repaired, more commonly, there is a change in the epigenetic material of the cell. And so that's what we've seen in multiple studies with these general anesthetic gases, like the one I mentioned, sevoflurane, where it induces, it's, and I, okay, I should say something like, I'm not a molecular biologist, and I hope I don't like completely like muck this up, but I'm going to do my best to try to explain it in layperson's terms. So what we've seen, for example, in, in one study by Victor Corsis, which was published um, this year in Biology of Reproduction, was that sevoflurane changes what are called transcription factors inside sperm, right, of the little tiny fetal mice. Okay, what are transcription factors? Basically, if they're proteins that can turn up or turn down the expression of a gene. So if you bind a lot of transcription factors somewhere, that will have a cascading effect later on how that gene, the gene that is controlled by what's called this enhancer. Again, I don't wanna get into molecular biology, but it will in, in ultimately change how that gene is expressed um, in the organism that is conceived of that germ cell. If a substance can change how transcription factors are bound and patterned in a germ cell, it can have what's considered a genetic-like effect in the neurodevelopment of the offspring. So for example, in Dr. Corsis's experiment, you know, he found that you had this transcription factor binding, it was in the sperm, it carried over into the embryo that was conceived of the sperm, it carried over into the brain development, right, of the offspring of that sperm, and it carried over into the behavior of that offspring, which was more antisocial behavior than you would have expected from a wild type mouse. That's a lot. I'm sorry that I threw so much in there, um, but it, it, what I'm trying to say is that you don't necessarily need a genetic mutation to have this effect on offspring behavior. It can be an epigenetic factor that determines you know, the outcome as well. So someone explained to me the epigenome as being like the genome is the piano and the epigenome is the person playing the piano. Analogy. Sure, sure. I mean, a, a similar analogy that I've heard people use is 
DNA is like the dictionary, right? Mm. It's like a list of words, but the epigenome is like Shakespeare. Like, how do you actually put those words together to have meaning, right? So that, um, you know, it creates sentences and something meaningful and, you know, beautiful and functional. You know, a dictionary itself doesn't do anything. It's just a list. Um, and the DNA is sort of like that. The DNA just kind of sits there and it's up to other factors in the cells to actually control how that DNA is expressed, you know, how that dictionary, how the words are expressed. Um, and this is what really has not received much attention in autism research. There is so much attention on the genome and on the DNA sequence, you know, the sequence of nucleotides in the DNA and almost no attention to um, how the DNA is actually transcribed and how differences in that transcription can result in abnormal neurodevelopment you know, in the offspring. Um, so that was really the main point of our paper was that, what did we call it? We called it beyond genes. Like it is time, it is well past time for autism research to look past genetic sequencing and towards this more biologically real and dynamic world of transcriptional regulation and how that transcriptional regulation is, can be derailed right, by certain exposures, like general anesthesia, but not just general anesthesia. Also, this has been documented in cancer. So the same, um, you know, the same hypothesis as some of the earliest work in mouse models had to do with exposure to chemicals and then looking at the rate of cancer, especially in, uh, you know, things like uterine cancer and cervical cancer, in multiple, multiple generations. So this isn't something that's just like brand new. This is something that scientists have acknowledged for a while in terms of some of the, the toxicity of, of certain chemicals and why certain chemicals have been taken off the market. Um, I do wanna ask you though, this is a question that goes along with, with the genetics and environment is you talk about the missing heritability. And so I want to make sure that the listeners understand what heritability is, because it has normally been considered just genetic. Um, so maybe you can explain the concept of heritability. This is a huge issue in autism. So autism is known to be highly heritable and there's a lot of evidence for that. The evidence that people like to talk about the most are the twin studies. So if you have identical twins with autism, they have upwards of a 90% chance of concordance, like both of them will have autism. But if you have fraternal twins with autism, the risk is more like 20%. So scientists look at that and say, well, look, autism is so strongly heritable. We see that with identical twins, the risk is so much higher, right? Than in regular siblings or heterozygous twins that it must be genetic. And I think, I can understand how they make that leap of logic, but it's based on a biological fallacy. And the biological fallacy is that this heritability has to come from the genetic sequence as opposed to factors within the germ cells that can be dysregulating transcription, right? Which is our argument. So I think there's been really a profound misunderstanding of what heritability really means. I think it has really strongly derailed autism research. 
I have no question at all that autism is highly heritable. Look at my own family, right? I have uh, two children with nonverbal autism. I had no you know, unusual exposures in my pregnancy. There was nothing, no maternal effects that anyone can think of, no risk factors. So I think anybody would look at my family and say, hey, two kids with autism has got to be genetic. Well, my argument is it's not necessarily genetic. It could be that something happened to my eggs. Or it could be that something happened to my husband's spermatogonial stem cells, right, which later gave rise during spermiogenesis to uh, mature sperm. Um, you know, we are not thinking about the history of these families. It, it's really remarkable, Alicia. I think, you know, in my role as president of National Council on Severe Autism, past president of Autism Society San Francisco Bay Area, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I've talked to hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of autism families. Some have three, four, even five kids with autism. I've even met a family with six kids with autism. Not once in any of these families have, has anybody expressed any interest in the history of the parents, right? They're, they're very interested in the genetics of the children and the parents, but they're not interested in the history of the parents. Like what exposures did the parents suffer that could have somehow changed the pool of their germ cells? And this seems to me the, the ultimate question in autism research. It should be the top priority for autism research. I just wrote a paper, was published in Biology of Reproduction about how important it is to actually talk to autism families, interview autism families and get those histories because that's the only way you're gonna get the hypotheses that are important in figuring out what's causing this tremendous increase in autism. I mean, I've, I wrote a paper, it's published in Environmental Epigenetics um, in that journal and it's all about my history of my exposures that I suffered in utero, but I'm not alone. I mean, I've, I've found incredible stories talking to families and you know the stories that um, are most prominent are those of families where a parent has had multiple or very unusually intensive exposure to surgery those parents seem to be at increased risk for having children with autism why is that well we have to figure that out I, this is just a hypothesis hunt i'm not a scientist i'm not doing the research myself but i can say with 100% certainty that it's a very critical question, even though I can't answer it. No, and, and I think that scientists recognize that it's a critical question. And I think there's a lot of challenges in terms of you know, measuring the environment. So his family history is one way to do it. And I absolutely agree that you know, we, we should be digging deeper than maternal exposures or what you known to be exposed to. I think one of the challenges is, is that technology needs to catch up we need to have better biological monitoring of exposures, right? Because there's things that you don't even know you're exposed to, you know, and that's a huge issue um, in public health is all this stuff that's out there that you're exposed to that you wouldn't even know you were. Um, and then, you know, if you wanna address a family, you know, look at family history, you have to know which questions to ask. And so some of these hypotheses about, okay, you know, phthalates or endocrine disruptors or, you know, uh, anesthetics, like those are good targets, but then you're worried that if you might miss something and if you miss something, you know, then you really can't go back because, um, you know, you're talking about going generations and generations before. So that's been a problem that's been plaguing autism researchers is how to best get at the environment, even in the parents, right? And even in the pregnant mothers. So the mothers who are pregnant, who, um, you know, they've, 
these newer studies have been collecting blood and even the placenta and cord blood and meconium and urine from pregnant mothers and then from also from from newborn babies you know it's just really hard to 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 narrow things down but absolutely you know we we could all be doing a better job about investigating potential exposures known exposures at least there has been some research that's looked at multi-generational or looking across generation in terms of of autism do you mind right i mean in humans right i mean i you can do this stuff in animal models pretty easily and we've seen that with you know multiple substances endocrine disruptors um you know these general anesthetics um you know i talked about felproic acid um tobacco nicotine cannabis you know, there, there's lots of animal studies that are showing these patterns, these, these heritable effects. In humans, it's very hard. Mm-hmm. I admit that it's not impossible. That particular study did find an association between grand maternal smoking and autism risk in grandchildren. Um, now, it wasn't a huge, you know, link. It, it was a pretty modest effect, but they did find it. Um, another study uh, on diethylstilbestrol, which was a very commonly used pregnancy drug in the 1950s and 60s and even into the 70s. Um, it was a synthetic estrogen that was very toxic. Um, another study found that um, grandmothers who took this toxic pregnancy drug were more likely to have grandchildren with ADHD. So that's another human study. Another study published, uh, was it this year or last year? Um, uh, showed that parents who were born prematurely were more likely, um, very significantly, to have offspring with autism. And was that due to the prematurity, or was it due to the fact that premature infants are o- often, um, you know, they're very, they're treated very heavily with steroids, with sedatives, with um, surgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very well known. So was it the prematurity itself, or was it the interventions? We don't know. It didn't parse it out. But you can see these patterns, these heritable patterns in a number of studies. There was a big data study, a machine learning study um, that looked at a vast population. I think it was Sweden. You probably remember better than I do, Alicia. Um, That found that families with a lot of history of like medical interventions and medical conditions uh, tended to have higher risk for autism in their offspring. It was a very non-specific study. But again, these things all raise the question is something happening to the parental germ cells that can raise the risk for abnormal neurodevelopment in their kids? Um, I don't pretend to have the answers, but I, I do think that there's a ton of evidence to suggest that this is a very important question and really should be a priority for research. So one of the things you said in your, um, in your paper, which I want to address, is that um, it's you, you may not think of this as normally gene environment. Um, I think of it, and I'll be totally transparent, I, this is to me the ultimate gene by environment, right? So you have you know, a genetic and you have influences on that expression of those genes that can affect downstream neurodevelopment. So tell me, tell me what you're thinking in terms of the concept of gene environment interactions. Yeah, we, we did make that distinction in the paper up front um, because as it's commonly used in the field, um, gene by environment interaction almost always refers to how factors or how, how someone's genotype influences how it deals 
how it responds to an environmental factor, right? So, you know, for example, um, I think it's been seen with Parkinson's that some people with certain genetic variations um, are more likely to have um, Parkinson's as a result of certain exposures. I think those are pesticide exposures. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah. yeah, it's been seen with um, general anesthesia that certain people with certain genotypes are much more vulnerable to toxic effects of general anesthesia. Um, so we, we see this a lot. And the only difference here is we're not talking about the physiological somatic body of a person and its response to mm-hmm. um, an environmental insult. We're talking about the germ cells. And that's the only reason we made that. But yeah, is it also an example of a gene environment interaction? Yeah, of course, of course it is. It's just more commonly used um, with reference to somatic effects. So you're, you're totally right. Well, no, I, I'm, I may not be right or wrong. It's just, I think of this as gene environment and you can have one of these rare genetic mutations that's, that's been attributed to autism, which I, they, they exist, right? So things like fragile X and do 15 Q and failing McDermott, but you can still also have an environmental factor that exacerbates that. So a perfect example is do 15 Q and the response to um, PCBs. So there seems to be some sensitivity and DUP15Q is copy number variation. There's varying parts of the of chromosome 15 that may be involved, but there's also epigenetic marks on, chromosome, on this area of chromosome 15. And they think that the PCBs may be working in concert with that. So yeah, that's a classic gene environment interaction. But I think we also need to think openly about what a gene environment interaction is, or we're going to continue to get narrow research. Um, Well, let me just uh, say, we don't think about our germ cells at all. I mean, we really don't. They are like a blind spot in how we think about the effects of toxicants. When you look at regulations and you you look at the field of toxicology, it's almost entirely focused on cancer and Mm -hmm. other somatic effects. There, it's almost completely off the radar. We don't think about sperm and egg. We just sort of presume that they're, you know, well protected and that they have robust repair capacity. Um, and that is in part true. They are actually pretty well protected, and they do have robust repair, you know, repair capacity. There's no question about that. But it's not perfect. And stuff does damage, you know, our germ cells. And it's, most things don't. Most things are completely innocuous to germ cells. I'm not worried about most things. But things like general anesthesia absolutely can be toxic to germ cells. That's been shown over and over again. Um, and, you know, like, okay, that should be something that's on our radar. Mm-hmm. As, um, an important question for toxicology, for environmental mutagenesis, for neurodevelopment, right? If we're, if we're changing the way that brain-related genes are expressed, which is what these dr- drugs do, then we really, then neuroscience should be very concerned about um, how, how it affects the development of the offspring. And it's just not there yet. It's just still kind of, you know, like science is weird. Like science is, I'm not a scientist. I say, I'm a complete outsider who kind of fell into this hole completely unexpectedly and have learned a lesson or two along the way. But science is weird. It gets to be very dogmatic. And it's a, it's a lot like things haven't changed since Galileo's time, right? Like, or Copernicus's time, like, are we the center of the universe? Oh, we're not. The sun is the center 
of the solar system really like that was so dramatically weird for people to think about. It, it took a long time for people to let it for it to sink in, right? That, or think about something even like um, washing hands, right? Like the idea of washing hands was completely like the most bizarre thing to surgeons and doctors for, you know, a hundred years after the idea of washing hands was first introduced. It took a hundred years for the field to figure out that washing hands was actually important to prevent the transmission of infection. I mean, science is weird. It takes a long time. You, you can see this in the history of lead. Like, you know, people knew yeah. that lead was bad, but oh, leaded gasoline, oh, it's fine, no problem. I mean, it took decades, decades, even though the, there was plenty of evidence that this stuff was toxic before the field accepted it. You see it with the history of tobacco and the carcinogenicity of cigarettes. It took decades, even though there was evidence there. And I think it's sort of like that with autism that we're a little bit stuck in a rut. And um, you know, this paper is very much trying to accelerate progress and open minds to other possibilities. I agree. And I also think we're in a rut just basically in science around understanding the role of the environment. And I think that it gets, as our environment gets more and more complex, um, you know, I think people get more and more stymied about addressing it, but at the same time, we have to start somewhere. And I've heard a lot about, you know, some of these high tech ways of measuring, you know, just the tiniest bit of something um, using, you know, different techniques and using statistical analysis to parse out if you can measure 200 things how do you incorporate that into your statistical model? And I've heard about that for a while, but I think that you know the lack of these tools has really kind of stalled research into the environment. So um, yeah, I'm hopeful. But you know, honestly, a lot of the tools are there. It's not. I, I honestly think it's not about the tools. It's about what questions people are willing to ask. Mm. You know, what types of experiments they're willing to do people are really afraid to kind of step onto new territory. I think a lot of it is just a chutzpah. You know, we need a little bit more chutzpah, a little more creativity. The tools are there. It's not that hard. Um, we just need to explore new territory. Yeah, and yeah. The one, one thing I do want to just say is there's a lot of, you know, quote unquote controversy over whether there's been a true increase in autism. The evidence is absolutely shockingly overwhelming that there's been a true increase in autism or whatever you want to call these neurodevelopmental disorders and this abnormal you know developmental profile of children absolutely overwhelming and it's really concerning to me to see prominent scientists including certain geneticists saying that well you know it must be better ascertainment because you know we can't find the genes and it's heritable when they are not actually dealing with the data itself that in state after state, country after country, we see this absolutely exponential pattern. We have to do something to address this inc incredible increase in disability in our children. Um, it's our really our moral responsibility. I feel that incredibly strongly and it's incredibly worrying to me to see people in the scientific community kind of backtrack from that. I also though also wanna take a different perspective and say, regardless of whether or not, I mean, I'm not arguing with you about the increase in prevalence, but I wanna provide an alternative, which is that regardless of that, that if this is a mechanism and this is going on, 
regardless of any changes in prevalence, we need to better understand this because, um, you know, it's going it, to, it, it does impact the way we think about the biological mechanisms of autism and what pathways are involved and what targets are involved. And we can think of it in terms of, of, of you know, monitoring change in prevalence, but I also want to give a plug to say, even if, you know, even if you disagree, this is still important. So it doesn't have to be tied um, for it to be important. I don't want the naysayers about the increase in prevalence saying that gene environment isn't important because there is no increase in prevalence. We doesn't matter. I mean, it does matter, but it, but scientifically, this is an important pathway. This is an important mechanism and we need to study it. That's just my, I would agree with that. But from a societal perspective, I mean, this should be up there with global warming, you know, in my opinion, um, it should be, this is a huge, huge social calamity mm-hmm. in, in my view. I mean, you, you look at the numbers, how dramatically they've increased, how you know, the costs, the long run costs to society, they're unsustainable, the cost to families, both, you know, financially and otherwise, um, it really is something that we are, are not giving enough attention to. And um, yeah, you're right. Obviously, there was an increase in COVID. We had to find what was causing it. We had to attack it. It, it. To me, it's almost the same. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy we got to talk about this paper. And you can will be hearing more about the topic of gene environment interactions in the future. This is something that both myself and ASF are, are committed to. So thank you. Alicia, thanks so much for having me.